Hi, everybody. Thank you for joining me for another episode of School Nutrition Dietitian. I'm so excited to kick off this body positive focused interview series. I am dedicating the entire month of January to speaking with people who specialize in health promotion in relation to nutrition rather than a diet or weight centered approach. This time of year, it is so common for people to become focused on their bodies in a negative way. And I think it's extremely important for us as people who interact with very impressionable children to be aware of our own biases in relation to body weight and our own beliefs around dieting because we can easily confuse the evidence-based things that we try and share with children with diet culture because diet culture is all around us. In this episode, we'll speak a little bit about what diet culture actually is and what damage it can do to the children we interact with and to ourselves. Today, we're speaking with Whitney Catalano from the Trust Your Body Project podcast. She has a lot of experience working with people who were subjected to negative messaging as children regarding body size and regarding restriction and regarding the role that food should have in your life. And as a result, are now working through disordered eating issues in adulthood. So I thought she was a perfect person to start with for this series. All right, let's jump right in. Fruits and vegetables can be super delicious. Eating healthy keeps you healthy on the inside. Keep your stomach satisfied and keep a clear mind. Now you're ready for your academics. Focus, time to handle business. Breakfast, you don't want to miss it. Help your body to replenish. Clean food, clear mind. That is the vision. Tune in to the School Nutrition Dietitian. Yeah, hooray for better audio. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Whitney. Thanks for having me. I really wanted to focus the entire month of January on evidence-based nutrition because I know January is a popular time of year for people to spread harmful messages about restrictive eating and excessive exercise. So the title of your podcast just was naturally a perfect fit for what I feel like people need to do and what I hope everyone will try to do at the start of this year. Can you tell me a little bit about the Trust Your Body Project and what made you start it? Yeah, it kind of evolved naturally because I was just looking for a name and I remember initially I'd come up with a name called Trust Your Gut or whatever. It was Trust Your Gut something. And it kind of fit, but then, because I've always been very intuitively driven, except for, you know, my history with disordered eating, in which case, or during that time, I really went against my intuition, which is kind of the whole thing, right? So with Trust Your Body Project, it evolved as a way to connect to people. Um, first of all, to connect to people who tend to be overworkers, who tend to be sort of are looking for that thing, a movement, a something to be a part of, because that's a lot of the reason why people turn to dieting and extreme behaviors and things like that. They're looking to bond. They're looking to, you know, have kind of a common goal, a common outcome. And dieting is a big one that you can do. It's like a hobby, you know? So I was looking for something like that. And I also just wanted to spread this message that our bodies are divinely wise and we can't sit here and debate nutrition or debate what is healthy, what is not healthy, if we're not also including an entire conversation around our body's own intuition and instincts. Because human beings have been feeding themselves since human beings have existed, right? All animals feed themselves. That's the whole thing. Like we are literally designed to keep ourselves alive. <laughs> Everything we do is to keep ourselves alive. And so to sit here and say, you know, our bodies can't be trusted and we can't be trusted to know what's best for us and da 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 da, I think it's just very, I don't know, it just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> right. Right. Well, yeah. what about for people, you do see people go in different directions with that idea that we have a long history on this planet. We can then for ourselves, people go back and forth about whether or not we should be looking at our ancestors ways or not for messaging about how we should live now. 
Paleo is a big thing, but then when you really look closely at paleo, you see it has no real connection to how people used to eat. It's kind of just someone's imagined idea of a prehistoric type of diet. But since life expectancies have changed over time, what benefit is there, do you think, to looking at some of the things that are modern when it comes to diet? Is there any benefit or are most of our changes in life expectancy related to different areas of healthcare? I think there's so much benefit at understanding the current research, whether we like it or not, whether you want to believe it or not, our food culture has entirely changed. We no longer hunt and gather our food. We have grocery stores. I mean, technically we gather it, but it's much more complicated than that, right? So we're not, it's it's very different. We have to look at the new research with the understanding that nutrition research is, you know, not the most specific. Like we we think or we act like we know a lot more than we actually do. Mm-hmm. And that's a big thing to recognize is we can make guesses and we can, you know, do broad nutrition recommendations based on what we know, but things are changing all the time. We're learning new things all the time. And so when I talk about our bodies have always been designed to live, what I mean by that is it's not about looking at our ancestors and saying, well, this particular tribe in this particular area of the world ate this way and they had great life expectancy, so we need to eat like them. No, there's so much other, uh, so many other things at play here. There's, you know, stress, there's our environment, there's, you know, food access, there's things like that that we really need to take into consideration. What I mean, though, is that our brains are literally designed and our bodies are designed to take in all the information that we have available and to make decisions for our body based on what is available. Mm -hmm. And when we are talking about health, when we take away the food rules and the guilt and the stress around food, because people are so stressed out about what they're eating, you'll be surprised how intuitive you are about food and how intuitive you are about the things that make you feel good versus the things that don't make you feel good. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. And we're, but what we have to do is unlearn all those messages first. How do we pick all of those messages up in the first place? So, some people who've never even thought about this before, because when you are immersed in a culture or immersed in anything and everyone around you says it's normal, it's hard to even identify that behavior as unnatural. It just seems like, oh, this is probably the way it always is. This is just life. This is how we relate to our bodies. We have to control our food. You have to count calories. You have to measure things out. If someone has never thought about dieting as something that's unnatural, Mm -hmm. how do you explain to them where they got all of their food beliefs from and which ones they should probably throw away because it doesn't serve their health. Yeah. So this is really tricky because if you have no sort of understanding of what diet culture is, it can be a little bit jarring to all of a sudden realize, oh yeah, we're constantly surrounded by messages about weight loss. And actually those messages should be questioned because I don't think there's a single person who is immune to those messages, right? They are absolutely everywhere, especially because our medical community is such a big pusher of those messages. You need to lose weight for health. You need to be thinner. You need to be doing this, like the weight epidemic, blah, 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 blah. All of this stuff is coming from not just the media anymore, not just, you know, magazines and celebrity diets and things like that. But now it's coming from our doctors. It's coming from school education. It's coming from the government. It is absolutely everywhere. So it's really hard to avoid. And I know it can be really confusing for people, especially people living in bigger bodies who have been told by their doctors, you have to lose weight because doctors are an authority figure, right? Why would you question a doctor? And I'm not even saying that you should sit here and say, my doctor knows nothing just because this chick on a podcast told me (laughs) so, you know what I mean? But I would encourage you to at least question it at the bare minimum and say, okay, is attempting to lose weight or is attempting to do all these things, right? Because what diet culture is really um, defined by is that every single thing that we do for health is actually in pursuit of weight loss. And weight loss is the ultimate goal, okay? So weight loss is this big thing where if you're not pursuing weight loss, like 
you're not being healthy, right? But if you think about, there is a very big disconnect between the things that we do to lose weight and the things that we do for health. Because a lot of times the things that we do for health are not actually gonna lead to weight loss. They're just gonna lead to better health. And so we keep cutting out foods, we keep restricting, we keep doubling down on ourselves, we go harder in the gym, we, we go out with our friends less, we do all these things that make our quality of life so bad because we think, no, but I need the weight loss. Because the weight loss is allegedly supposed to give us this amazing quality of life. <laughs> that is right. just not realistic, right? So when it comes to, you know, sparsing out those, or, you know, deciding between which messages to believe and which, which messages to not believe, always check in with yourself and your own quality of health, quality of life. So if something is in pursuit of weight loss, but it is sacrificing your happiness, it is creating stress in your life, it's causing you guilt, it's causing you shame. If some belief about a food means that every time you eat that food, you become more ashamed or more guilty or more stressed out or anxious, and you feel like you need to go on these crash diets and these cleanses and all these things to fix yourself, that's not healthy. We need to be reducing stress, number one, end of story. That is the biggest thing that we can do is reduce stress. That's financial stress. That's interpersonal stress. That's stress around food. Stress from your job. Any way that we can do that is the number one thing. And so if your food rules, your health rules, the things you've learned from other people are creating stress in your life, it's got to (laughs) go. Right. Do you think there's research that shows excess stress, no matter what the source, can be just as damaging as other negative health habits like smoking or drinking in excess or what research is there? It's hard to compare those two in the research just because um, I don't even know how you would go about controlling the other factors to say. But what we do know is there's actually a ton of research right now because the big conversation really in, in weight and weight loss is whether or not it's actually being fat is a thing that creates an increased risk in health problems or if it's something else. And what we're finding out is the stress of being stigmatized for your weight, the stress of, you know, we know that poverty and marginalization are two of the biggest contributing factors to worsened health outcomes. And when we look at that, the big link there is stress, financial stress, stress from being oppressed, stress from being stigmatized, stress from being discriminated against. Like these things create lasting issues in the body. They lead to worse medical health outcomes. They, you know, exacerbate issues that you already have. They cause inflammation. Talk about inflammation, right? Everyone's talking about inflammation, but no one's talking about how a a diet that's stressing you out is going to cause inflammation. Like (laughs) that's kind of the whole thing. So there is plenty of research that stress is like the number one thing we need to be taking into consideration when it comes to health. And yet everyone loves to focus on food. (laughs) Right. Now that's a really interesting distinction because when you think about the people who tend to live in larger bodies because of Mm -hmm. lack of access to um, fresh food or basically calories that are filling, they only have access to calories that tend to leave you hungry and wanting more. And so you have a higher calorie diet. Those people are typically under a lot of stress anyway, because of um, lack of financial resources. So it's really disappointing to know that we as a society may be adding to their stress and worsening their health outcomes by criticizing them for a symptom of a problem that is not the actual problem. Exactly, exactly. You're looking at people who have to work two or three jobs to support their families who are working day in and day out are under an incredible amount of stress. And, you know, depending on the size of your family, getting very little subsidies from the government and saying, you need to eat more greens. Like, cool. Okay, what am I, like, I'll add that to the list. Thanks. <laughs> right. <laughs> And then I know it's like, where was I reading? I read an article. It was maybe a little morbid for some, but Mm -hmm. I don't like to get too freaked out about considering my own mortality because it is, well, like, it's a sure thing. There are a few things in life you can be sure about. But the writer was saying that some people are in denial about their own mortality and they are just heartbroken when they find out that you can follow all of these rules. Like you said, people conflate weight loss with the pursuit of health. And Mm -hmm. at some point, some people tell themselves somehow that's going to lead to immortality, which is not Mm -hmm. true. And they're just 
shocked and disappointed when they suffer negative health outcomes as a thin person who exercises excessively because mm-hmm. they were told that some things are indicators of health that may not actually be linked to health at all. So this uh, fat shaming and weight stigma hurts everyone, whether or not they're in a larger body. And I think that's something that's difficult for people to understand as well. I mean, it's just like sexism hurts everybody, mm-hmm. not just people who are being given a hard time and getting 75 cents on the dollar. It has ways of damaging people who are in the dominant group as well. Right. Exactly. Because you know what it's doing? It's exactly what you said. It's creating not only stress around food, stress around our bodies, and just like unnecessary obsession with all of this stuff. But it's also, you know, putting us in a position where we are very misinformed about what it is that we quote need to be doing. And it it kind of robs us of our agency because it says whatever you just read on Google, whatever you just read on HuffPost or the New York Times or whatever it is about health should matter more than your body's own indications or intuition around food. And people will actively sacrifice their health, happiness, and well-being because they think they, quote, should be doing something. And I do honestly really believe in that theory about how a lot of this obsession with health is tied to our fear of our own mortality. Because when you look at some of the popular blogs and, and coaches and whoever online, there's such a niche of people who use food as a way to like cure disease. They'll be like, I cured cancer through juice cleanses. And you're like, you were not allowed to say that. <laughs> um, right. And it's this thing where people have lost a family member. They've become acutely aware of their mortality. And then it's like, I will do whatever it takes in order to live longer. Is living longer really worth it? If it's like two questions, right? Is living longer really worth it if you're miserable the entire time? And then the second question is, how do you know that everything you're doing is actually going to, going to help you live longer? You don't. Your genetics could come up with a real big surprise, or you could eat ice cream for the rest of the day and live till you're 103, right? Like, we don't really know, and that actually happens all the time. <laughs> right. Like, yeah, you're right that people, you said earlier, people pretend to know so much more than we could possibly know at this stage in nutrition science, really. And it's absolutely too soon to start assuming we know better than the individual body, right? you know, unless there's some documented, clearly diagnosed disorder that is making the body's signals unreliable. It Mm -hmm. isn't safe to assume that we can't trust it. But what do you do when someone has spent years looking for external cues to eat? And there's some of those that we can't even really control. So as -hmm. soon as you go to school, or if you even studied at home growing up and got to eat when you wanted to, as soon as you get to the workforce, you can't eat whenever you want anymore. So right there, that's the end of you being able to decide when it's time to eat, which I think is damaging. But let's say you have been taking someone else's word on when it's appropriate to eat for so long, you can't tell when you want to eat anymore. How do you tune in to your own body? Part of the reason that our hunger signals shut off after a lifetime of going on diets and then restricting ourselves and skipping meals and trying to whatever is that our body is basically doesn't trust that we have the access to food and it's not helpful. Let's say, you know, take it back evolutionarily, right? Like if we're running from a threat and we're highly anxious, highly stressed out and restricting your body going into calorie restriction does put the body in a high stress state because it thinks, hi, there's no food. It's freaking out. Yeah. <laughs> so if you're running from an animal or trying to escape something, like it's not helpful for your body to have hunger signals. If you were running and also terribly hungry to the point that you can't think about anything else, that's not helpful. And so part of this process is allowing the body to know okay, or putting this body in a situation to know, okay, we're going to get enough food. We're going to be able to eat every three to five hours because then your hunger and fullness signals start coming back on a clock. So not skipping meals is the first thing. The second thing is allowing yourself to 
give yourself the things that you want to ask yourself what you actually want, what sounds good and dealing with the guilt and the shame that comes. So if you have a lot of guilt and shame that comes up when you eat certain things, remember that no one is making you feel guilty except for yourself. You are totally responsible for whether or not you feel guilty and reducing the guilt and shame does not change the fact that you already ate that thing. So if you're going to eat it, don't spend two days afterwards freaking out about it. Just eat it, move on with your life, continue eating consistently so that your body is not in this constant state of like, I'm stressed about what I just ate. Now I'm being restricted. Now I'm getting enough. Give your body a rhythm and give yourself a break, basically. That makes a lot of sense. Now, if you have gotten to a point where your body is sending you messages about maybe you carrying more weight than your frame can manage and you're starting to freak out, what do you tell people who feel like really and truly they want to weigh less because it's become difficult to carry the weight that they have on them? And they think it would be beneficial to their health, but either way, they're physically uncomfortable getting from one day to the next. How do you operate in a body positive way when you do feel that you legitimately want to be smaller? Is there any way to reconcile these things? I think for starters, however you're feeling about your body is not the problem here, right? I mean, of course, we want you to feel good about your body. I want you to like the body that you're living in and feel comfortable in it because it makes things a lot easier. But also a lot of the way that you're feeling about your body is informed by our culture and is informed by standards that are kind of ridiculous, honestly. So remember that if you're feeling, you know, really uncomfortable in your body and you're feeling ashamed, you can work on part of that, which is accepting where you're at now and realizing that wishing that you looked a different way to the point that it makes you like so upset is not doing anything to change your body. It's just creating a lot of stress. So that's the first thing I want to say. In terms of, you know, wanting your body to be smaller, wanting to feel better, have more mobility or whatever it is, there's always two things that I say to people. The first is, has dieting or pursuing weight loss in the past actually worked for you? Chances are it hasn't. And by that, I mean, has it worked long term? If you're coming to me and saying, I don't know what to do because I do so want to lose weight, but like, I, because I feel uncomfortable in my body, et cetera, then it hasn't worked, right? Like, right. <laughs> any attempts that, if this is your first attempt at losing weight, that's another story. But I feel like most people <laughs> have tried before. You know, this isn't something right. that's like a brand new concept for people. Like, <laughs> we've been talking about weight loss for forever. Okay. So my first question is always, has it actually worked? Have the things that you've done actually made you happier in your body, helped you be more active, more mobile, all these things? Because what we see from the research is that people with a history of dieting tend to have, you know, less intrinsic motivation to work out long term. They have less intrinsic motivation to exercise or to eat healthier, whatever it is, engage in health promoting be- behaviors because dieting has like ruined it. Right. Because <laughs> we, we fail a diet and then we're sitting here and we're like, okay, well, screw it. What's the point? You know? Yeah. Or that thing where people want to start the diet at, it needs like a defined start date because that's right. part of the whole dieting thing. So if some fun opportunity to play a sport or do an activity comes up versus laying around and resting and eating until the next diet starts, you decide mm-hmm. to lay around. Exactly. And so I always tell people, you know, if you still want to diet, if you want to learn all of this information from me, and people are following me on Instagram and, and they say, I still can't, I, I still feel uncomfortable in my body. I still want to be able to move more. I want to be able to walk upstairs without running out of breath. I want to, you know, do these things. And I'm like, look, if you still want to try to pursue weight loss after learning all the consequences of dieting and after seeing your own history with dieting, I'm not going to sit here and shame you. I'm not going to tell you that, no, I'm not going to say anything. That's totally up to you. And I would highly encourage you to pursue movement and feeling better in your body regardless of weight loss itself. Because what we do is we treat weight loss like this gatekeeper. Weight loss is the thing that's going to open the doors to you being like a marathon runner who is like super healthy, has like the best relationship with food ever. We think that weight loss is going to just magically open this door to this lifestyle that we've never known before. 
And that's not how it works. If you want a particular lifestyle, if you want to feel better in your body, you want to walk upstairs without running out of breath, start walking upstairs every day. (laughs) And eventually it'll get a lot easier. (laughs) Go to physical therapy, go to do things. There's so many resources online, yoga, Pilates. I recommend Pilates to everyone I know who's in a bigger body, who struggles with joint pain and back pain and things like that. Actually, everyone in any body who struggles with joint pain and back pain because Pilates was literally designed as rehabilitation and Mm -hmm. it will help your joints. It will help your back. It'll strengthen your pelvic floor. It'll strengthen all of the things you need to feel stronger and more aligned in your body without this obsessive focus on weight loss. Well, and I wonder with a lot of exercise programs, because it is so common to exercise in pursuit of weight loss, mm-hmm. will people in larger bodies be welcomed in spaces where Pilates is practiced? Or how do you assess that before you go out and give it a shot? Yeah, what I've found in Pilates, because I've spent years in it, and it's my favorite exercise strategy for this reason. Unfortunately, it's a little less accessible, but mat classes and gyms and stuff tend to be um, cheaper or free if you're a member. So there are ways to do it. But what I've found with Pilates is because it was developed for rehabilitation and is used in physical therapy studios, is used um, by chiropractors, people of all bodies are welcomed in these spaces. And it's rarely about weight loss. I have, the only time I ever come across Pilates studios that put a focus on burning calories or tightening up or whatever it is, is when you go to those sort of extreme Pilates classes where it's to music and it's really fast paced and you're like sweating the whole time. And it's, you're surrounded by a bunch of like, I don't know, people in small bodies basically who are there to push themselves. And it's very unwelcoming (laughs) and it's very uncomfortable. (laughs) And I don't like those. That's not what Pilates is designed for, you know? So I've found that it actually is one of the more inclusive ways to work out, not for price-wise, but for um, their language and their cueing and their modifications. They make modifications for everybody. They make modifications if you have an injury. It's just so well thought out. And unfortunately, price is a barrier. And that's right. the part that sucks. Yeah. Right. Now, what other kinds of exercise are accessible for people who maybe are at a point where they can't stand to exercise? What other things do you recommend? Since movement is a health-promoting behavior regardless of the size of your body. Mm-hmm. So big ones that I love, especially if you are in a bigger body and it is a little bit painful to start out, things like swimming and Tai Chi are really big ones that you can, swimming you can go do at a gym. I know it's uncomfortable for people, but if you can just get in the pool and get to it, it's so good on the joints and it feels amazing. Tai Chi is something that you can do from the comfort of your home, or you can go to a park or something. There's always people in parks doing Tai Chi. It's a very slow, mindful activity. The other thing I like to tell people too is you can turn, you know, we have um, research that shows that your mindset when you go into uh, daily activities like cleaning your house, cooking, if you go into it with the mindset that this is you exercising and moving your body, as opposed to the mindset of, oh, I just got to work, you know, I just got to clean my house right now, your body actually responds like you're getting a workout. I saw (laughs) something like that, that they told a group, they had two sets of women or two sets of people, they didn't identify their genders doing housekeeping. And they told one group, this is so beneficial for you. This is cardio. And the other group just went about it. So it's a job, which it is. And their bodies responded completely differently based on Mm -hmm. that information. Yeah, exactly. There's something about intention, right? We know we see over and over again in the research that intention makes a really big difference in the way that even our bodies digest food. So there's research around seeing low calorie labels. Actually, your body prepares for you to not eat very much versus if you see a high calorie label, your body creates more digestive enzymes. It responds with bigger fluctuations in your hunger and fullness hormones because it's looking to visual cues to respond. So when we're talking about intention, this actually is a really big deal. And one of the things I tell people is, Turn on some music while you're cleaning. Turn on some music while you're cooking. Dance around. Have fun. Go into it with the mindset of this is how I'm moving my body today and I want to enjoy it and I want to have fun and I want to use this as a way to reconnect with myself. It doesn't have to be anything extreme or crazy. It's just moving. And that's yeah. the whole point. Move your body. 
with intentionality, whatever that looks like. You know, the other thing I tell people is go to a park, go do something that you haven't done in years and is going to give you fun. Go to, I don't know, just think about a thing that you would have done immediately as a kid. And then for some reason, being an adult means that you can never have fun again and go do that thing, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's nice to have permission. Well, people wait for permission. So sometimes you'll notice people who maybe weren't that playful have children and all of a sudden they're playing again. And once they grow up and leave, they stop playing. Like you don't really have to have a reason to jump in puddles. If you want to jump in puddles and you're 50, that's fine. Do what you want. You're grown. You know, you don't need permission to play, but it does seem like a lot of us are waiting for permission to play. And I think it's so good for your mental health. That's kind of too bad. Well, this is the whole conversation, right? Not only are people waiting for permission to play, they're waiting for permission to be happy. And they're looking for a thousand different reasons why they're not doing enough, why they're not working hard enough, why they're not eating well enough. They're not moving their body enough. They're not blah, 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 blah. And so one thing I tell people is like, stop shooting all over yourself. You know, (laughs) you you get to decide you are totally in charge here. And it is a little weird because we grow up with parents who tell us what to do. Then we go to school systems that tell us what to do. Then we go to jobs that tell us what to do. And we're just sitting here used to being an employee to our own lives. But you're the manager to your life. You get to decide what makes you happy. So do that. You said a mouthful. I mean, even going into the new year, the way it's framed, like this year I'll be better. Like mm-hmm. this year I'll be worthier. Like like last year you weren't good enough. Even to me, it used to bug me when people would say like, oh, you know, I support people improving themselves in connection with secondary education even because I'm like, what I'm hearing is that you were somehow lesser than before you went to school. I'm like, what are you saying to everyone else who will never have the time or the opportunity or even the desire to go? Like, again, you're putting another should out there. And Mm -hmm. the concept of improving and striving, it's great to have goals or things that you want to do and you work towards them. Some people need structure in their lives to feel their best. And some people don't, honestly, there are a lot of people that get a ton done that never have a goal Mm -hmm. and they just do what calls to them and they're fine. I don't know how they escape the pressure to be so goal oriented beyond anything that makes sense, you know, and ignoring your body signals to sit down and take a rest and just that feeling that if you're not striving, you aren't good enough. Mm-hmm. And you just have to keep getting better. To what end? I don't know, because as long as you're in that mindset, you're never going to be good enough. Exactly. So maybe that's a better, <laughs> a better goal for the year is how can I start to accept myself so that I can really enjoy my life? Mm-hmm. I love that. And that's a I'm little all, tricky probably to get started. Yeah, it's really <laughs> tricky. I'm all about setting intentions for the new year. That's what I teach my clients. And that's what I'll be teaching on social media this year and whatever. Intentions to me are not looking at everything that went wrong or everything that we hate about ourselves and trying to improve, right? Intentions are, okay, what are some things that I really want to boost up in my life to make myself happier and to really enjoy myself more? without making last year this horrible thing that this year we're trying to fix. You know, it's just, what do I want the focus this year to be on? And this year for me, my intentions were community because last year working from home was pretty lonely. So I was like, you know what? I want more community. That's what I'm gonna do. And then the second one was ease. I realized I work too hard. I'm an overworker. I, I distract with work. So this year was all about ease. How can I make things easier? How can I be more accepting of myself? How can I be more accepting of exactly where I am without trying to rush to the next thing? And that in itself can be an intention, the intention to stop rushing to the next thing. And how do you, do you just reassess when you're taking on new projects? How does this fit in with my intention for the year? Kind of. It's been about, for me, it's been about, yeah, checking in with myself kind of subconsciously and consciously to say, am I making things hard or easy on myself? And knowing that when I fall into a pattern of overworking and stress, I really feel the consequences. And so I'm almost Mm -hmm. forced to remember my intentions 
because burnout is real. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And overworking is real and it really affects the body. And so it's almost like I didn't even have a choice this year. It was kind of like, if I want to continue running my business and continue to be successful at it, I really need to slow down. Yeah. And that's where it's interesting. You can ignore your body at your own peril Mm -hmm. when your body says, hey, maybe take a break. And you just keep going and keep going. And then it's like, sit down. Uh, (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Yeah. That has happened to a lot of people. Listen to your body. So I love your message. What is one of the things that you most hope to share with the world through your podcast and through your business? Nobody knows your body better than you do. And nobody knows your mind better than you do. And we really need to stop listening to other people as authority figures over our lives. That's just, that's just it. Yeah, absolutely. And what do you think the end goal should be in your mind. What is the role of the dietitian? Cause you see with weight loss as an industry being so huge and so cyclical, the design of most programs seems to be for you to be dependent on that program for the rest of your life, whether they mm-hmm. give you a lifetime membership, you're always dependent. What is your vision for your clients? My end goal is for my clients to not have end goals anymore. My end goal is for my clients to walk away because I I work with people typically on a six month basis just because nothing happens below that time. You know, we need, we need that six months to really radically change the way that they approach food. Right. So my end goal is always, I want you to walk away away from working with me, not feeling like you're perfect, not feeling like you never, you know, need help again, you're amazing and da 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 da, because that's unrealistic, right? Right. My end goal is for you to walk away so accepting of yourself, so in love with trying to accept yourself. And so, you know, in tune with your body and equipped with the tools that you need to continue this process on your own. And recognizing that there is no end goal, there is no finish line. This is a regular journey and accepting where you're at, even when it's messy and it feels uncomfortable and you're like, I don't know what the next step is because we love control, right? So my whole end goal is for people to not feel like they need control in order to be happy. For people to be able to practice such radical acceptance with themselves, with their bodies, with their minds, everything that they work on quote improving in their life is actually just a small thing that they're experimenting with. I'm all about like curiosity, noticing, experimenting. I want you, if you want to experiment with healthy behaviors, if you want to experiment with working out or new kinds of working out, I want you to feel confident in, you don't have to be an expert in it. You don't have to have it all figured out right now. Take those baby steps and enjoy every step of the process along the way. That's kind of a massive undertaking. How did you realize that those were concepts you could teach? Because this almost sounds like something that other people may naturally have, but it took their parents a full 20 years to inculcate that into them. How do you help adults change their outlook on life in six months? I mean, and six months sounds like a long time from the perspective of the customer, but yeah, but in the grand scheme of things, it's nothing to completely change your outlook on life. Yeah, I have a lot of training and passion and excitement for trauma healing. So I do a lot of let's go back and talk about what your dad said to you when you were five. Let's go back and talk about your grandma pinching your stomach fat at seven. Let's go talk about, you know, let's cry all that stuff out and recognize that like you are no longer under the belief systems of your parents. You don't have to buy into that anymore. You actually get to make your own belief systems. So I really do go back and it's never someone who grew up with a really great childhood that comes to me. I'm helping people who were given like really aggressive overworking messages by their parents, ignore your feelings, shove, you know, use food as a way and use dieting as a way to control your feelings and binge eating in secret, or maybe they were restricted by their parents or whatever it was. And we 
spend a lot of time talking about that. And then once we get that stuff out on the table, and we start to heal those past experiences, then you get to begin rewriting your story. And it's hard. It's really, really hard to shut this sort of fight or flight response off and live in a place of acceptance and alignment. It's very, very hard. But it's possible when we actually address and realize, oh, wait, these things aren't truth. They're beliefs that we got from a parent who didn't know any better. And who maybe didn't even know that they were teaching you a way to see the world. They unintentionally shared their outlook with you. Mm -hmm. Because I'm sure most people want better for their children than they do themselves, but it's hard I don't even know that it's hard. It may be impossible to give somebody something that you don't have. Right. So if you have a hostile relationship with your own body, I don't see how you could raise someone who has a peaceful Mm -hmm. relationship with theirs. So yeah, it's kind of tricky there. You mentioned earlier, you had some experience with disordered eating. Have you noticed that there are some traits or behaviors that are clearly recognizable as disordered that are considered acceptable and maybe even healthy in a different context? And if so, what's an example of that? Absolutely. So one of the big examples that we see is among eating disorder clinics in America, especially, I don't know about the rest of the world, but in America, one of the big conversations that are happening around eating disorders is that eating disorder clinics as a way to expand, quote unquote, is that they will have weight management clinics inside or next door. And you're like, oh, so you are helping people in thin bodies and the things that you're telling people in thin bodies not to do, you're prescribing to people in bigger bodies. That seems like an ethical nightmare. Also, what? (laughs) So (laughs) it's dark. And so on a less extreme version of that, you know, we all the time see this where the things that are recommended for weight loss would be diagnosed as disordered eating in a thin person. Right. And it's things like progressively cutting out more and more food groups in attempts to lose weight or in attempts to control your body. It's um, becoming so rigid with your eating that you skip out on going out with friends and family or enjoying your life because you're scared of the food. It's having really intense food fears and food guilt. It's obsessively body checking and obsessively comparing yourself to other people, to people on social media and spending a lot of time in the mirror or actively avoiding mirrors. Those are kind of two sides of the same coin. It's people who you might hear make a little comment when they're about to eat of, I'll have to work this off tomorrow or, oh, I shouldn't be eating this. I've been so bad lately. They make almost these, you know, subconscious comments as a way of vocalizing the guilt and the shame that is within them. These things are signs of disordered relationships with food. And yet we see them as normal now and we even overlook them in people in bigger bodies. So we have to be asking ourselves why that is. Why is it okay for some bodies to have those behaviors because they're pursuing weight loss? That doesn't make a lot of sense. And it's interesting that you could be rewarded for behavior that has morphed into a disorder but no one notices until you're extremely underweight. Mm -hmm. And that's the only point at which it's considered a problem, but the behavior has not changed. Why couldn't it be identified sooner as this is not a health promoting behavior because that's the reality of the situation. So one thing I hope for, for everybody who's working with children is to be able to make a distinction between what is a health-promoting behavior, and what is a behavior steeped in diet culture, and getting everyone to understand diet culture does not help us, and it cannot help our children, and if we want to teach them healthy habits that will help them live their best life, and by best life, I mean your happiest life, the life that looks however you want it to look, You have the energy to do what you want to do. You have the mobility to do what you want to do. And you have the emotional energy to do what you want because you don't spend 50% of your day thinking about getting your body to do something that you want it to do. So what message in particular do you think 
people should be driving to send to children. Let's say that you know that you still have food issues. How do you check yourself when you interact with kids? Encouraging kids to tap into their own intuition and knowledge about food. So asking questions rather than telling, you know, it's what do you like about this food? If you want to share nutrition advice with a kid, you want to teach also be teaching a kid how to be in the kitchen, use a knife, how to pick out a vegetable that is ripe versus unripe or that is ready versus not ready. Make it a fun experience. Make it about skills, make it about behaviors and not projecting your morality onto foods and saying, you know, we don't eat those things around here. Or, you know, you have to eat your vegetables before you eat dessert because that's not realistic, right? Like sometimes we right. just want dessert and then the next day we won't. And that's okay. It's not a big deal. So It's encouraging kids to really use their intuition and use their (laughs) instincts around food because kids have a lot of instincts around food and they are untouched by diet culture. So let's not bring it into the conversation. Make it about what they want, what they don't want and eating in a way that gives them energy, that is fun, that's colorful, that's pretty, that is well-balanced. If that's something you want to talk about of like protein and carbs and just having sort of all the things without demonizing or villainizing food, without making it about weight loss. Because no kid needs to be hearing messages about weight loss. No kid needs to be told that they are big or that they are chubby or they are whatever, you know? Kids don't need to be aware about their bodies before the world will naturally get to them. (laughs) Like, don't start it in the home because all they want, especially if it's your own kid, all they want is your approval and acceptance. And if they feel like they have to lose weight for your approval and acceptance, you are setting them up for a lifetime of disordered eating and body image issues because that stuff is exactly what causes the belief systems for years that the only way I can be loved is through weight loss. And it's dark. And if you already have done that, if you know that your kid has already picked up on some of that stuff, I don't want you to sit here and feel horrible. Just start retraining, start this conversation again. Kids are extremely absorbable. They are sponges. They are absorbing everything. It's never too late to start having this conversation with your kid or your, you know, even if it's like your adult kid, right? It's never too late to start having these conversations with your kid about loving themselves and accepting their body and fueling themselves and and enjoying food and appreciating food without it being this thing that's used exclusively for weight loss. I can see that being scary for people, but I can also see where that is a tremendous opportunity for healing on the part of the adult as well. Mm -hmm. As you start communicating these messages, because it's so sad to me that people will be able to give more uh, care and affection to others than they can offer themselves. But I know that people genuinely want to help their own children and other children. And when Mm -hmm. I hear people talking about the epidemic of being in a larger body, a lot of times what people really mean is they want people to have the freedom to live the way they want to live, but they also have absorbed a little bit of that. Some types of bodies are better than others and it comes out that way, but their intention is not to harm anyone. So I definitely agree that if someone feels like they have done this to their child, the solution is not to beat yourself up because Mm -hmm. you did not do that on your own. You know, the messaging is everywhere and when you know better, you do better. So I know there's a lot of pressure in environments where you're supposed to be the example to be in a smaller body if you're working with children um, because people say you're setting a bad example simply by being by existing. (laughs) So that's another thing I really want for people to give themselves this year is to know that no one is, if anyone has made you feel like you are a bad example, simply because you're in a larger body, uh, please question that question. the Yeah, please. Well, and you know, what's interesting too, is that is almost the exact same argument people used to use or still use about seeing like gay couples on TV. You're promoting a lifestyle. You're promoting a thing as if being gay is a behavior and a choice. And you're like, wait, 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 what? Like, yes, exactly. People existed regardless of whether or not we see them on TV. You know what I mean? Being on TV or being out in public and existing does not promote anything except for self-acceptance and representation. 
Yes. And the same is true about body size. You cannot tell someone's behaviors or someone's health status based on their body size. You just can't. In the same way that you can't tell if all weight loss is good. People assume that all weight loss is good. And guess what? It's a lot of the time not because the lengths that people have to go to to lose weight are not healthy behaviors. So just taking a second to recognize that this is just another conversation we need to be having and that you can't assume anything about someone by looking at them. So all we can do is just exist and try to you know, be happier and encourage people to accept themselves and love themselves. Yeah, that's a fantastic message. I want to close on this horror story of a, a great example of what you just said. I was working in healthcare, public health, and I met a woman who lost a lot of weight as she was talking about how much better she felt and how great it was and how she's setting, setting an example for everyone in her family. And so I asked her what she had changed. And she said, oh, I'm being treated for breast cancer. Mm. But she was so happy about the weight loss. And I thought that was the most just insane manifestation of that belief that weight loss is always a sign of health and it's always a good thing and it should always be celebrated. That she's like, she's still not sure whether or not she's going to survive. But she's so hyped that she's lost her appetite and lost a lot of weight. Which is like, damn, you know? I don't know. Like, what else you supposed to say to that? that? Yeah, I was just dumbfounded. I was just like, oh, no, girl. Like, I don't even know. I'm like, I don't want to lecture you because mm-hmm. you know what? You don't need that right now. And if you're, oh, my goodness. But what a mess. What a yeah. mess. And, and I, setting what example? <laughs> like, um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I am. exactly. Yep. Exactly. Hot mess. Yeah. Well, yeah. thank you so much for coming on. Where can people find you and keep up with the Trust Your Body Project? Instagram first, Trust Your Body Project. Twitter is Whitney Catalano, but also you'll see Trust Your Body Project on there. Anywhere you get your podcasts, check out my podcast. And where else? WhitneyCatalano.com is my website. And those are the major places that you can find me. So I'm all over the internet. Definitely come follow, come say hi. And I'm happy to talk to you more. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Wow, we really covered a lot of territory in this interview. I love that Whitney emphasized the damage that stress can have on the body. And we really don't want to add any additional sources of stress to our lives whenever we have the power to reduce stress. So just another reason to consider being kind to yourself this month and not criticizing your body and really focusing on habits that promote health and have no known negative side effects. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. I'll see you next week.